This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there and live a past period, you can hear it, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho penitentiary and the men and women who serve time here. I am Skye, and as you know, if you're a longtime listener, I am not normally the person who introduces it, but again, Anthony is off being his incredible self and is very busy. However, our good friend Samuel is joining us, and he is going to be the sole storyteller today. How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing well, Skye. How are you doing? I am good. I am in my little office. Like in Texas, they call it a carol. Maybe it's just at SMU, but it's just a little graduate student office I have on campus, which is nice. So if it's a little echoey, I am not in my closet today. Still looking forward to hearing your story. And from what you've told me, I know a little tiny bit about it. I've mentioned a little bit about at least the place, part of the place that it takes place at. I am looking forward to hearing what you have to tell us today, Sam. Yeah, today will be a little different, but I'm still talking about two different individuals. I'll be sharing both of their stories and sky of course i'm looking forward to all of your insightful commentary to help us understand these men a little bit better that's so generous because i i'm not sure how insightful my comments often are but i do enjoy making comments so i can at least promise that is that i will make comments whether they're substantial i can't say. <laughs> I'm also pretty excited because this story hits very close to home. I grew up in Rexburg but worked on farms and helped out on ranches all over eastern Idaho and western Wyoming. Every one of the locations in this story today I'm intimately familiar with. In fact, I spent my final furlough last summer in this neck of the woods. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, I love this area. Even more so than my hometown I grew up in, always considered the Teton Mountains home. So I'm thrilled to share such a wild story that took place in a location so close to heart. I'm so excited to hear about this story, so let's hear it. Few men strike such a startling contrast as William Teton Jackson and Frank Mayo Canton. The two in many ways were exact opposites. Teton described as the prince of horse thieves, and Canton as a fiercely efficient peace officer. But despite how much the comparisons might horrify them, Teton and Canton also shared a lot of similar qualities. Both of them were driven leaders, steady in moments of high stress, and quote, remarkably rapid with revolvers. These two men only crossed paths once, in 1885 in the Teton Mountains, after which they rode their separate ways and went on to leave behind legacies you can still feel today. Unlike many of the individuals I've featured in the show, you can learn about Canton and Teton in museums, movies, podcasts, and books. Few, however, tell their stories together. Two men and two careers, the left-behind legends still talked about today. So, saddle up and join us tonight in the Teton Mountains for a ride of a lifetime. 
The Tetons are a 40-mile mountain range in the Rocky Mountains that separate Idaho from Wyoming. These mountains are just south of the Yellowstone National Park and just west of the Grand Teton National Parks in Wyoming. Just like the rest of America, native history stretches back thousands of years. Archaeological evidence suggests indigenous people inhabited this mountain range for at least 11,000 years. For historical reference, it's more than double the age of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. While this area is most often attributed as hunting ground for the Shoshone-Bannock Nation, there were many other groups who occupied the area, including but not limited to the Blackfoot, the Crow, the Salish, the Kootenai, the Grovant, and Nez Perce nations. Many of these groups hunted game and gathered plants there during the summer, harvested camas root in the fall, and moved to lower elevation areas for the winter. John Coulter, a mountain man from Lewis and Clark Expedition, explored the area in 1807, and within 20 years other fur trappers were hunting in the region, including David Edward Jackson, in which Jackson Hole is named. French trappers named the mountains La Trois Tetons, or the Three Breasts. Euro-American settlement around the range did not occur until the 1880s, and more legitimate cities were not really established into the 1900s. Why? The winters. Poor Anthony knows firsthand that whenever I talk about East Idaho, this is the first thing I bring up. If you've ever spent a winter in Jackson, Victor, or Driggs, or the surrounding area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, listen, I, I lived in Laramie, which is all the way across the state from Jackson, and even there it was miserable. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Wyoming and a lot of enjoyment from Wyoming, but the weather is often not one of them. Yeah, it's so different. You're just doing a weekend trip to ski or visit Town Square in Jackson, but an entire winter, one that starts in October and ends in May, is brutal. It's brutal. These inhospitable conditions made winter habitation dangerous and miserable during the 1880s, but also made for the perfect conditions to get away with crime. 1884 was a very hard winter. Robert Cooper, Harry Thompson, and William Teton Jackson shared a cabin somewhere in Teton Valley. Some reports put it at Badger Creek in between Ashton and Driggs, while other historians put the site closer to the Wyoming border. The winter of 84 had been a hard one. The three men were confined to a small space, with not much to do than add wood to the fire and drink whiskey. The men were undoubtedly experiencing some serious cabin fever. There is no information given on what started the dispute, but it is suggested an angry Cooper got violent. Guns were drawn. Thomas and Teton got the drop, shooting Cooper in the chest and groin. On January 23rd, Teton and Thompson, despite the harsh conditions, saddled up and rode to the settlement of Rexburg, where they turned themselves over to the authorities. Idaho Falls, referred to at the time as Eagle Rock, first published newspapers about the slain. Two weeks later, Sheriff Edwin and a party set out on an expedition to retrieve the body. Conditions were not on their side. Eleven days of storming caused the group to get lost and frostbitten. When the team finally made it to the cabin, they had no way to transport the body back. So, Sheriff Wynn removed Cooper's head. As ghoulish as it sounds today, this was actually a very common practice in mountain towns in the West. I found multiple murder cases in East Idaho in which sheriffs decapitated victims to bring back the heads as evidence. With Cooper's head in a gunny sack, they headed back. Eagle Rock reported Sheriff Wynn's safe return on February 12th. Teton and Thompson pled self-defense. 
There were no witnesses, no real evidence. The community already viewed Cooper as having questionable sanity to begin with. Both men were acquitted. But not long after his death, rumors began to spread that Teton killed Cooper for bragging about their illegal operations, for telling people he belonged to a gang of outlaws who were led by William Teton Jackson. Newspapers far and wide went into great detail over Teton's memorable appearance, but Sheriff Frank Canton says it best, describing Teton as, quote, He was about 45, over 6 feet in height, weight 190, stubby beard, raw bone, coarse features, flaming red hair, red face, and eyes as black as a snake's. Much of Teton's life remains a mystery. He told officers at the prison he was born in Rhode Island in 1855. Others claimed he was born in 1855. 1840 in England. He went by a variety of names, including Arthur J. Carpenter, William Moss Johnson, George Brantford, Harvey Gleason, and William J. Jackson, to name just a few. However, based on the surviving census records of his family, my bet is his real name is Arthur Bradford. His mother, Hannah Foss, and his father, Charles Bradford, welcomed him into the world on September 28, 1854, in Uxbridge, Massachusetts. While little is known about his upbringing, many speculate he came from a good family who made sure he had a good education before he came west. Most sources agree Teton fought for General Cook during the Sioux War of 1876, which I mentioned briefly during my Samuel Ridgway episode. It's unclear what the 22-year-old Teton experienced during the conflict, but it would be the only time he fought as part of the military. After this, Teton moved to the Hole and Wall Pass of Wyoming, a famous hiding place for many wanted men. Years later, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch lived in the region. But by the 1880s, Teton found himself in Jackson Hole working a lucrative business. It was public knowledge that a gang of outlaws used Jackson Hole as a hideout, using its remoteness and harshness of the conditions to protect themselves from authorities. In Frank Canton's autobiography, he described Jackson Hole by saying, 25 years ago, this was the most talked out of outlaw rendezvous in the world. Here's how the gang was operating. First, they stole horses from Idaho and surrounding states. Always horses, never cows. They needed to move the stock fast and far. As tough as cows are, they are not always the most compliant animal for being moved over mountain passes. So instead, the team focused exclusively on horses. Once they had the horses at their three log cabins in Jackson Hole, they then took a hot frying pan to burn off the animal's brand. They then treated the wound with bare grease to help it heal faster and increase hair growth. Then the group would settle in for the winter the hardest part of the job already over. The Madison County Monitor newspaper from Montana described their holiday by saying, quote, In the basin, the gang gathered in the winter and spent the winter days in hunting and fishing, horse racing and gambling, an ample store of provisions and whiskey supplied the demand of the band, which at the present time numbered upwards of 20 men. The area is difficult to reach, but once in the basin, it is incredibly easy to spy the approach of travelers. If the authorities ever came into the area, area the gang could spot them from miles away. The basin is known for having excellent grass from the snowmelt. The gang then moved and sold the team, sometimes in Canada, but more frequently in South Dakota, 
which was experiencing a mining boom. As we saw previously in the season, often so-called outlaw gangs are exaggerated. However, Teton's gang was the real thing. While newspapers claim the gang boasted anywhere from 60 to 300 members, depending on the paper, Sheriff Frank Canton claimed the gang actually only claimed 12 members, which seems to be a much more accurate estimate. So let's talk about the members of the outfit we've been able to identify. We already know about Harry Thompson, who also used the aliases Bill, William, and Ed. Thompson was Teton's right-hand man and often referred to by the newspapers as Teton's first lieutenant, as well as the most noted rifle shot on the mountain border. Next off, we have Bob Tarter, referred to as The Fence. He was Teton's inside man who handled horse-stealing operations at Market Lake before passing them off to Teton. Tarter's family carried a rough reputation. His brother, Dan, served time in the Washington Penitentiary for horse theft. Tartar, with his experience in the trade, is obviously the brains of the operation, and sometimes even credited as the real leader of the group. Other notable members were Blackie Marks, sometimes called Black Tom, George Stevens Woods, better known as Big George. There is also Frank Solian, John Bliss, Lucas Jones, Johnny Currents, Johnny Goodman, and a man called Red. This is sometimes used to refer to Red Anderson, Red Campbell, and even Scott Holbrook. Unlike the others who have many aliases, Red seems to be a shared title used by different people at different times. By far the most famous member of the gang outside of Teton himself was Ed Harrington, also known as Edwin Trafton, the Yellowstone stagecoach robber. But since I'm going to be going into his life story next season, I'm going to hold off on telling you his story. All of these individuals have fascinating stories that I just simply do not have time to do them justice today. But the gang also had a high mortality rate. The Madison County Monitor claimed, quote, The bones of many of the crew lay bleaching under the prairie where Winchester Bolt overtook them. The papers declared Teton Jackson the undisputed leader of the gang in 1885, using terms such as the outlaw chieftain, the prince of horse thieves, and in more contemporary papers, the king of Jackson Hole's wild bunch. Given his name because of the area in which he committed the crimes, all were in agreement on who was in charge. With Teton undeniably one of the most dangerous men in Idaho at the time, his arrest in such a remote location would be near impossible. But Frank can was not a man who backed away from a challenge. The Daily Yellowstone Journal in 1886 stated, quote, Sheriff Canton is a bad man when out on the trail for criminals and always catches on. Frank Canton is the most famous lawman who I've ever covered in one of my episodes. It's a name that should sound familiar to many listeners. He had a complicated and at times even controversial reputation, but all who knew him described him as tough. To let him use his own words to describe his career, he wrote, I have served more more than 50 years as an officer on the western frontier. My chief duty has been to protect the good citizens from the bad men who infested the border settlements in the early days. In this capacity, I have worked from the Rio Grande to the Red River in Texas and from there to the Yukon in Alaska. My experiences have included everything in the line of outlaw fighting. In his autobiography, Canton states that he was born on September 15, 1849, Virginia, 15 miles west of Richmond. As a teenager, Canton went west to work as a cowboy in Texas. In 1883, he won the sheriff election in Johnson County, Wyoming, where his name is still recognizable and remembered today. Locals described him as tall, lean, and handsome, standing just under six feet. However, one local rancher, J. Elmer Brooke, claimed that Canton had, quote, yellow coyote eyes. In the book, Wyoming Range War, 
author John W. Davis described him saying, quote, He was a proud, tough, and fiercely efficient peace officer, traits that very early earned him the admiration and praise of the large cattle interests in the area. In January of 1885, Buffalo celebrated as Sheriff Frank Canton married a local girl named Annie Wilkerson. Despite later claims, crime in Johnson County was actually relatively low during this time period. Sheriff Canton made an occasional arrest for a stolen cow and broke up fights at the local saloon, but nothing that put his life in serious peril. But that October, this would change. Canton faced his first serious test as a new sheriff. His name, of course, William Teton Jackson. That October, Sheriff Canton received an urgent telegram from Officer Billy Hosford in Blackfoot, Idaho. Teton and his gang just rode off with 50 horses belonging to High and Stout. Two Shoshone Bannock hunters reported they saw the gang headed into the mountains. Unlike our horse thieves at Grave Creek earlier in the season, Canton knew exactly where they were headed. But winter comes early in the Teton Mountains. If he wanted any chance of being able to apprehend them before the snow closed the pass, Canton needed to act immediately. Sheriff Canton recruited his two best deputies, Chris Gross and Ed Lloyd. Together they rode over the Bighorn Mountain, an impressive feat in any condition, let alone while on an urgent mission in the dark. They rode all through the night, and after a long and treacherous journey, they arrived at Jackson Hole a few hours before sunrise. They spotted the cabin immediately, and after tying their horses to a tree, the three of them crept forward through the forest. There, they waited. Just before daybreak, the flickering light of a candle showed through the cabin's only window. Canton gave Gross his Winchester and ordered him to watch the window. Then Lloyd and Canton approached the door and removed their pistols. They creaked the door open as quietly as they could. Teton, not yet completely dressed, smoking a pipe, crouched as he worked on starting the fire. He'd yet to put on his holster. His gun and ammunition belt sat a few feet away. Far enough for Canton. Canton yelled, Throw up your hands! Lloyd aimed a gun at the others in the cabin. On Canton's command, Gross ran in and handcuffed Teton. The three other men were compliant and all claimed innocence. Lucas was a known member of the outfit, but the two others claiming to be wolf hunters could have been telling the truth. Canton did not know. He did know it it would be a lot easier to bring in one man than four. So he made a deal with Lucas. Lucas would be permitted to round up the horses with the two deputies. If a single horse was left unaccounted for, Canton planned on arresting Lucas as well. The three of them headed out into the woods to capture the stolen stallions, leaving Canton alone with Teton. Now, this dialogue between them that I'm about to share with you is from Canton's autobiography adjusted to present tense. Canton wrote his autobiography during an era when many Westerners such as Buffalo Bill, Pat Garrett, and White Earp were also publishing dime store novels of their adventures. While these were marketed as non-fiction, they were greatly exaggerated, if not entirely fabricated. We know this arrest actually occurred, and this is the only surviving documentation we have about the specifics of that fall day. But, that being said, I would take this following encounter to be more representative than completely factual. As Canton's deputies went to gather the horses, the sheriff and Canton sat alone in the cabin. Canton sat six feet away from Teton, his hand resting on his revolver. After some time, Teton told him, 
The handcuffs are so tight that the blood cannot circulate and I'm in great pain. And if you would take them off, I would keep quiet and promise not to hurt you. I am not the least bit uneasy about you hurting me. That, I had no objection to granting your request. You are the one that's taking all the chances. For if you made the slightest move, I will kill you. I understand the situation. Canton then threw the keys over to him. Teton unlocked the handcuffs and pitched the keys and cuffs back to him. Teton, rubbing his wrists, told him, You will never take me to Buffalo. And you want to serve notice on me right there and then? I'm a better man than you, even without a six-shooter. I will take you to Buffalo. You are worth as much to me dead as alive. I would prefer to take your dead body as it would be less trouble to handle than a live one. Canton threw the open handcuffs on the floor at Teton's feet. Do not snap these on your wrists in 10 seconds. You will take your medicine. Teton put the handcuffs on in seconds. Once Deputy Gross, Deputy Lloyd, and Lucas returned with all the horses, they headed out with Teton's hands cuffed and legs tied under the belly of the horse. If the ride there in the dark had been hard, the ride back with exhausted horses and a prisoner in captivity proved to be much harder. So like rope around one ankle underneath the horse, rope around the other ankle. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. I mean, that's one way to make sure they sure don't get away. Yeah, I can't be leaping off the horse with that. On top of the Bighorn Mountain, they crossed over a muddy meadow. Canton, who brought up the rear, started to struggle. His horse began to sink into the mud and began to panic. Canton leapt off his horse, hoping that without his extra weight, the horse could regain its footing, which it did, and trotted right up next to Teton. Teton grabbed for Canton's Winchester. The click of Lloyd's gun stopped him in his tracks. As Canton mounted his horse, Teton told him, If I could have got that gun, I would have settled with you anyway. It was a close call, but an inch of a miss is as good as a mile. Sheriff Canton and Teton arrived in Buffalo on October 17th. Once Billy Hosford escorted the prisoner back to Blackfoot, Idaho, Teton immediately went on trial. Bingham County found Teton guilty of grand larceny and sentenced him to 14 years of hard labor at the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary. On November 8, 1885, the prison received Teton at 5 feet 8 and 3 fourths inches tall. Occupation, shoemaker. Eyes dark brown and hair red. In 1885 to 86, the prison with only one cell house struggled with overcrowding. With only a wooden wall at the time around the facility, men were given a ball and chain every time they left their cell. Which, with few forms of labor to do, did not occur all too frequently. Instead, Teton must have spent extended time locked Locked up with his cellmate Scott Holbrook, who served a sentence for injuring a public jail and grand larceny. If listeners have ever been to the site and stepped into the tiny claustrophobic cells in Two House, you have a pretty good idea of the space these two men and their bathroom bucket shared. Oof. Canton claimed to receive a letter from Teton. In that letter, Teton explained he had no hard feelings towards the sheriff. He understood the sheriff had only been doing his duty when he arrested him, and that Canton had treated him well. He explained that Warden Fred Dubois did not supply prisoners with tobacco. Teton, with no money, could not purchase any of his own, and wondered if Canton would be so kind to send him a dollar. In return, Canton reported to have sent Teton a short note, enclosed with a $20 bill, a modern equivalent of $600. This should have given Teton enough tobacco to see him through the rest of the year. Turns out, he did not need the supply. On the morning of August 28, 1886, guards discovered Teton and Scott's cell empty. Underneath a stone block in the floor, they discovered an 11-foot tunnel that led to the yard. With the use of a table knife and a spoon, the men dug their way out, 
one little scoop at a time. They then dispose of the dirt by carrying it out in their honey bucket or bathroom bucket to dump it into the privy each morning. The Mountain Home Bulletin reported it took 30 wheelbarrows worth of dirt to fill in the hole. It took the two men five months to complete this task, but they had been patient and now they were gone. The two men were nowhere to be found. The independent records speculated, quote, there is no doubt that Teton is once again with the bold bandits and we will not be long before the surrounding country learns in unmistakable terms that the scourge of the four frontiers is again in the saddle. Scourge of the four frontiers is a heck of a nickname. Teton does not need any extra nicknames and yet he continues to get cooler and cooler nicknames. I mean, listen, that is kind of the goal is like, <laughs> oh, this guy has so many cool nicknames, but he just keeps doing such cool things. We can't help but give him cool nicknames. That's what I want in my life. Amazing. Okay, I continue. Know. Isn't that great? I love that. According to legend, a paper discovered on Teton's bunk detailed a list of 12 men he planned to kill on sight. No matter where or when I meet them. The first name on the list, Frank Canton. Meanwhile, back in Buffalo, Frank Canton experienced something that greatly altered the trajectory of his life. He lost the election for sheriff. Not only did he lose, but he lost to William Red Angus, who owned a local brothel and saloon in the city. Well, everyone knew Canton as the iron fist of justice, Angus was known as both being friendly and approachable, liked by almost everyone in town. Traits Canton did not have. John W. Davis describes Canton's reputation simply by saying he was too tough for a small town. While Canton wrote as if he was unaffected by this defeat, those close to him described him as humiliated and furious at losing the position he held so dearly to a man Canton viewed as a criminal. Luckily for Canton, he did not stay unemployed for long. Trouble began to build between the small and big ranchers of Wyoming. The big cattlemen accused the local of all being rustlers, using the corruption of local authorities to protect themselves in court. However, there seemed to be very little evidence to support this. Rather, most historians believe the heart of the conflict actually had to do with land rights. Big cattlemen needed huge areas in order to graze their livestock, but as more small homesteaders began to settle in the region, this threw a wrench into the free graze. When petty lawsuits failed to push the immigrants off the land, attempts at intimidation, and later violence were implemented. None of this proved to be successful. The cattle barons needed a new level of violence to get what they wanted. But first, they needed a strong leader to drive the charge. Someone with incredible grit, good with a gun, and merciless in his execution of orders. It just so happened that Canton not only fit all of these characteristics, he also now held a grudge against the locals who refused to re-elect him. The Wyoming Stock Growers Association, which at the time acted on behalf of the wealthy cattlemen hired Frank Canton. For the following years, Canton worked in this role as the violence continued to escalate in Wyoming. Back here in Idaho, authorities found not a trace of Teton and Scott, who seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth. Over in Montana, however, Sheriff Reed experienced plenty to keep him busy. In 1888, locals contacted Sheriff Reed of Yellowstone County and warned him that a group of horses with mismatched brands were being pushed through the mountains by two men, Walter B. Marsh and O'Brien. On April 6th, Reed 
accompanied by two of his best deputies, took a midnight ride. Together, they traveled 20 miles south of Billings, Montana, where they found the men camped at Bundy's Ferry. They spotted Marsh sleeping by the fire, but O'Brien was nowhere in sight. Sheriff Reed and Deputy Smith rode into the camp and leapt off their horses. Reed drew his revolver and woke Marsh, yelling, Hands up! Marsh did not move. Reed repeated the command, Hands up! Hands up! Marsh did not move. Smith came around back and put his Winchester on Marsh. The hands were slowly drawn out of the blankets. Reed cuffed Marsh and kicked the blanket off. There he discovered a loaded revolver and rifle the Marsh had been reaching for underneath the covers. The three officers ambushed O'Brien on his way back into camp. They began to gather the 57 horses who wore 13 brands, many of which were from Nevada. The suspects were escorted to the Billings Jail. Now, while Sheriff Reed focused his energies on law and order in Montana, he was not oblivious to the ongoings in Wyoming and Idaho, more specifically the wanted men of the Rocky Mountains and the rewards on their heads. And few heads were as wanted as William Teton Jackson. Marsh, the man in custody, bore a striking resemblance to Teton, with long dark hair and beard with a distinct red tint. In the following week, Sheriff Harris took custody of Marsh, transporting him by train to the Bozeman Jail. Newspaper already began to buzz about the possible identity of Marsh. If Marsh was Teton, that meant the bounty on his head, according to local papers, was $6,000, which if true, is just under 200000 in modern currency. Wow. Marsh entered the court that day with a quote, cowboy swagger, with no fear of conviction. Days before, Marsh assembled a team of strategic lawyers, including attorneys A.F. Berlin, Lane, Harwood, and McGinnis. This team pleaded a case of habeas corpus on their client's behalf, claiming the court lacked enough evidence to prove Marsh to be Teton. Despite their impassioned and powerful arguments, Marsh turned to his lawyers during the middle of the trial and informed them quite loudly that you are not doing a very good job. Despite Marsh's critiques of his attorneys, they were in fact successful. Judge Little discharged him on April 18th. I just was going to say, can you imagine having the scourger of the four frontiers as your client and him being like, you're not doing a very good job. I'd be like, okay, so I quit. Um, good luck. <laughs> oh, so I can't even imagine. So scary. Authorities waiting outside of the courthouse quickly rearrested Marsh and took him back to Billings. He might not be Teton, but he did steal a lot of horses. Jack Hurley came on behalf of the Montana Stock Association to try and decide a plan to get the horses back to their rightful owners. Out of the 57 horses, there were brands that belonged to Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and Nevada. O'Brien, who claimed ignorance of Marsh's crime, declared himself to be a hired man, working for Marsh and unaware the stock was stolen. Since Marsh never paid O'Brien, he demanded nine of the stolen horses as payment. Jack refused. O'Brien, with the help of an unknown number of masked men, went to take them by force. The men drew their weapons. Jack shot O'Brien, hitting him in the back of the head. But 16 horses were stolen by the gang during the chaos of the gun battle. O'Brien survived this gunshot, but this only seemed to complicate the confusing mass. Deputy Marshal Tinner from Boise came to Billings to see if they could identify the man. They came to a rather quick conclusion. So, Sky, do you think Marsh was or wasn't Teton Jackson? I think it was. 
Prince. He most certainly was. Yes. Marshall Tinner transported Teton back to the penitentiary by train. You might be wondering how Teton found such an incredible team of lawyers to defend him. Apparently, he offered to give them stolen horses. Teton, now cleaned up, no longer had dark hair with a red tint, but rather hair the color of fire. It's unclear what he used to disguise the natural color, but clearly it did not last. The Madison County Monitor reported that, quote, Teton Jackson is redheaded, and before re-entering the penitentiary had a luxuriant growth of bushy red whiskers. The gang's involvement in this crime is very unclear, but based on the 16 horses that were re-stolen during the gun battle between Jack and O'Brien, it's clear that Teton and O'Brien were not acting alone. May 19, 1888, the penitentiary again received Teton to serve out the rest of his sentence. Newspapers all across the Rockies published articles about Teton's capture. The Midland Empire News of Montana said at the very best when they stated, since Teton Jackson was arrested here some weeks ago, he has achieved nearly as much newspaper notoriety as a presidential candidate. As Teton started to settle in for a much longer stay at the prison, Frank Canton in Wyoming loaded his guns and prepared for a bloody campaign. Small ranchers Ella Watson and her husband Albert John Bothwell were both lynched near Sweetwater River, Wyoming in 1889. When I TA'd for Wyoming history, which is how I know some of this story, we talked about with our students that lynching in particular and how absolutely brutal and both yeah. of the people were innocent, but the woman was literally just like living on that land. Yeah. And they lynched her and it was horrifying. It's so gruesome. They left the bodies hanging for three days. Mm -hmm. Despite being nicknamed Kettle Kate after the murders, almost no evidence came forward to suggest she actually committed any crimes. And that is absolutely the epitome of Old West law. Vigilante justice. It's not yeah. really justice. It's violence. Oh, yeah. And after, the witnesses of the lynching were threatened, poisoned, and disappeared without a trace. No one would ever be convicted for the murders. In 1890, after George Henderson, a range detective who possibly instigated the lynching, was murdered in retaliation, the range wars of Wyoming officially kicked into overdrive. The following year, three more small homesteaders were lynched, and two were shot. Some lynched for cattle rustling, did not even own or sell cattle. A local cowboy named Nate Champion began to rally locals together, forming the Northern Wyoming Farmers and Stock Growers Association. That November, a squad of assassins broke into Nate Champion's cabin. He shot down two men, killing one. The group retreated, not expecting any counter-resistance. In Nampa, Idaho, in March 1892, Hiram Ijams, secretary of the stock growers, met with George Dunny, an Idaho gunman. Ijams proposed they hire some men to help track down and kill the locals in Wyoming, saying, quote, Killing a few men will terrorize the remainder of the rustlers, and they will leave the region. Fifty men arrived in Johnson County, Wyoming. Most of them were hired guns from Texas. This group, now known as the Invaders, were led by Frank Canton, who carried a hit list containing 70 county residents sentenced to death by the wealthy cattlemen. The hired guns were paid $5 a day and given an additional bonus of $50 for each man they killed. On April 8th, Frank Canton led the Invaders to the Casey Ranch, where Nate Champion and four other men slept. At sunrise, they opened 
gunfire. Two of the cowboys were captured. The third Nick Ray they shot to death, leaving Nate Champion alone against an army of 50 men. Nate held out for hours, shooting down seven men, four of whom died from their wounds. After the invaders set his cabin on fire, Nate rushed out with a gun and knife. Canton and his men riddled him with bolts, leaving a note on his chest that read, Cattle thieves, beware. iJams hoped that this violence would cause the rest of the locals to scatter proved to be a terrible miscalculation. Instead, Sheriff Angus, accompanied by 200 locals, rode in defiance against the invaders. The invaders took cover at the T.A. Ranch, and by April 11th were completely surrounded by the posse. Huge amounts of gunfire were exchanged, five invaders were killed in the crossfire, and one of the Texans died when his own gun discharged into his groin. After President Benjamin Harrison received word on the situation, he sent soldiers in from the 6th Cavalry from Fort McKinley to put an end to the bloodshed. This ended the battle, but the violence continued. While many invaders, including Canton, were captured and tried for the murder, all were eventually released. Residual violence continued in the area for years, resulting in more deaths. But the most violent chapter was over. Frank Canton, never answered for the men he killed and helped massacre in Wyoming. The Johnson County War is very important in Wyoming history because of everything that you've talked about, right? The cattle rustling, the homesteading, the vigilante justice, all of this is very important. I have been to the TA Ranch and they still have the barn with the bullet holes from this Johnson County War. And you can actually still visit it as far as I know if you are interested. You can go stay, they have a, an entire guest house. It's, it is a very interesting, cool site. I'll post a picture of me at the barn at the TA Ranch. A very, very beautiful place. Highly recommend visiting. I didn't know this connection, so I'm glad that you're doing this. I did not know that that range war had a connection to one of our inmates. Meanwhile, back in Idaho, Teton remained in prison. This time, his attitude seemed to have changed. He kept his head low, got his work done, and did not try to escape. He once again wrote to one of the law enforcers who sent him to prison. But this time, he did not ask for tobacco, but instead attempted to settle up with some of his affairs writing. Mr. Harris, dear sir, I've arrived here right side up with care. Thanks to the good care of Mr. Tyner, and as I'm still here, and as they don't seem inclined to turn me loose, I begin to think that I must be the man they wanted, although not so high a price as some supposed I was. Mr. Callahan, my attorney here, will write to you, and as I am poor hand at writing, I will let him do it with pleasure. The papers giving Mr. Kennedy power of attorney will arrive there in a few days, and then I hope those bloodsuckers will let go. If they don't let go, let me know. I leave it to you and Mr. Kennedy to pick out three head of horses for Mr. McGinnis. My gun and my pistol you may sell for whatever you think a fair price and send me the proceeds. As I'm flat broke and my friends, if I have any, don't know I'm back here and most of them don't want to know. I thought over what you told me when we parted in Helena and I rely on you and Mr. Kennedy to see that parties not owning any of those horses do not get them and you have handled stock enough to come very near telling if you will only do so when a man is trying to get away with stock he never saw. Hoping you will keep me informed if anything happens, which bears on my interest. I remain yours respectfully, W.M. Jackson. Since the time of Teton's first arrest, the gang's activities fluctuated. But after his return to the penitentiary, the group seemed to have a major decline. In 1892, the group resurfaced briefly under the command of Tom Riddle, a mysterious leader described as both gentlemanly and as far more brutal than Teton. In fact, papers wrote nostalgically of Teton's exploits as opposed to the ferocity and zealousness of the gang's new leader. However, Riddle's reign was short-lived, and within a 
a few years, he faded back into obscurity. Authorities recaptured Scott Holbrook in 1888 after stealing horses in Alturas County. For years, we mistakenly had his escape marked as a success. Big thank you to our incredible pen volunteer, Jack Horcade, for helping track down Scott and help us correct that in our permanent record. By 1890, Governor Shoup gave Scott a full pardon due to Scott's struggling health. Frank Solin and John Bliss were arrested for murder of Nelson Bump in 88, but were never convicted. Ed Trafton, of course, went on to serve multiple prison sentences at multiple penitentiaries. Red Anderson and Black Tom were killed near Yellowstone Park. In 1885, Deputy Gross killed Big George in the Bighorn Mountain and captured Frank Lamb. Perhaps worst of all, Dan Tartar shot his brother Bob Tartar to death in a gunfight in 1893. Yeesh. The state of Oregon sentenced Dan to 12 years in prison for killing his brother. Frank Canton put it simply, Teton Jackson, out of the way. The backbone of the band was broken. In prison, guards seemed to like Teton a lot, describing him as, quote, a stable, well-behaved prisoner, behaving with respect, those whose duties brought them in contact with him and invariably mindful of prison rules. Work as a guard has never been the safest occupation. Charles Young, another resident of the penitentiary, attacked the turnkey guard, but before he could kill the turnkey, Teton fought him off. Another guard on duty, Thomas Ray Howe, reported to the penitentiary that without Teton's timely intervention at the risk of his own life, prevented the sacrifice of at least two lives and possibly more. He went on to say, this moral, as well as physical courage displayed by Jackson in this instance, showed he possessed of qualities foreign to the ordinary prisoner. Teton continued to be on good behavior. When he applied for a pardon, he received mixed support. Stout, one of the men who Teton stole horses from, asked the warden, not unkindly, to keep him in prison until he had served more of his sentence. On the other hand, 34 individuals signed petitions in Bingham County asking for his release. The prisoner's staff noticed a major decline in his health. Teton lost weight and became sicker and sicker. Secondary reports suggest the prison physician did not feel optimistic about Teton's situation. On April 6, 1892, Teton received a pardon, released from the penitentiary after serving four years and ten months of a 14-year sentence. Two years later, in 1894, in the Wind River region in Wyoming, William Simpson accused Teton of stealing 100 sacks of gold, but after Teton's supplies were searched, and not a flake of gold could be found, the charges were dropped. Canton, on the other hand, moved to Oklahoma to work as a deputy U.S. Marshal. His position as Marshal, just like the many other occupations he held before, Canton made some serious enemies, including Bill Dunn. Canton previously arrested Bill for rustling, and in 1896, when Bill learned that Canton had been gathering evidence against him, Bill decided to face the problem head on. On November 6th, Frank Canton stepped out of a restaurant and onto the streets of Pawnee. About 12 individuals stood on the plank sidewalk, bundled against the cold November wind, staying clear from the dirt main street. As Canton began to make his way up the road, Bill Dunn emerged and stood before him, yelling out, Damn you, Canton. I've got it in for you. Both men drew. Bill collapsed, a bullet in his head. His own gun snagged on his suspenders as he pulled out his weapon. But by then, 
It was already over. Two years after the violent gun duel back in Idaho, Teton met someone who forever changed his life. Now, not much is known about Mary May Halloum. Mary was born in 1881 in Wyoming, a member of the Shoshone Bannock Nation. At the age of 17, she met 44-year-old Teton. And on November 24, 1898, they married at Bear Lake, Idaho. Teton's outlaw days were officially over. Together, they established a ranch near Crowheart, Wyoming. Teton worked as a cowboy and a guide for hunters. Few knew those mountains better than him. Mary and Teton welcomed four children into the world, Lincoln, Ida, John, and William. Together, they stayed in Wyoming, spending extended periods of time with Mary's family. Teton stayed devoted to Mary and the children for the rest of his life. To my knowledge as a researcher, he never committed another crime. Now, we are quickly coming to a close of these two men's stories, but I did find some factual errors in Frank Canton's autobiography. And before we conclude, I would like to tell take just a moment to set the record straight. Canton claimed to be born in Virginia. This is not actually true. He was actually born in Harrison, Indiana. Canton claimed to have worked as a cowboy in Texas, and well, this is partially true. It's misleading about his other activities. But perhaps the most obvious error I found in the book is his name. Because you see, Frank M. Canton was not named Frank M. Canton. His real name was Josiah Horner, and just about everything in his life was a lie. Ooh, I can't, this juicy. As early as 1871, at the age of 22, Josiah robbed banks, stole cattle, and killed. No way. Josiah was wanted in Texas, many U.S. territories, and by the U.S. military for killing a black soldier. But once farther west, Josiah changed his name to Canton and found himself no longer being pursued by a badge, but behind one. That is crazy. Despite what newspapers claim, Teton can only be connected directly to one death. Frank Canton's death toll is a much harder number to tally. Between the lynchings and shootings he may or may have not directed, it's obviously a much higher number than Teton. Many of the slains Canton committed, he did so as a paid mercenary. In 1927, at the age of 72, Teton died near Lander, Wyoming on September 25th. Two days later, in Oklahoma, Frank Canton, at age 78, died on September 27th. In 1885, two men crossed paths in the Teton Mountains, both of whom went on to become legends in their own rights. Teton Jackson is remembered in the Grand Teton Discovery and Visitor Center, books, blogs, posts for tourists visiting Jackson Hole, and even in podcasts, some of them which are quite fun. Meanwhile, Canton's legacy is a bit more complicated. Some still view him as a hero and defend his actions, but as someone who spent time talking to individuals from Buffalo, I can tell you, locals still have a lot of resentment towards the man who spilled so much blood in their community. Few men strike such a startling contrast to one another and yet share more in common than they ever knew. As for the man the papers deemed the Prince of Horse Thieves, before his death, Teton proved himself to be far more than a thief. Teton was a husband, a father, and a friend. And according to the guards of the penitentiary, Teton possessed both moral and physical courage, a side of him often overshadowed by the earlier crimes of his life. Both Teton and Canton have been hated, feared, beloved, and even romanticized. But behind the legends, legacies, and lies is the history of two lives, who 138 years later are still remembered in the Rocky Mountains.
Wow, that is so interesting, Sam. It's such a story. Mm -hmm. I knew about the Johnson County War and had TA'd and taught my students about it, learned more about Wyoming than I ever thought I would know. But I did not know that about Frank Canton. I guess I would want your opinion on this. Do you think, regardless of his past prior to and his role in the many, many, many deaths, which undoubtedly he contributed to, overall, do you think his impact on the community was positive or negative? I don't know. I think that's a good question. I think it kind of depends on the community. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it seems like he did more honorable things in Oklahoma and Alaska, but I think his impact on Wyoming was still very, very mm-hmm. negative. One of the things we try to do on this show is highlight stories that have not been told. There was some reluctance to do this story just since it was so known, since Teton Jackson is talked about in a lot of tourist blogs and is discussed a lot in Jackson Hole. What ended up encouraging me to do this is a lot of those blogs had a lot of misinformation about him. Perhaps my favorite described him as 6'3 and 300 pounds. I felt like it may be good to set the record straight with some resources that some of these other researchers may not have available to them. Speaking of which, my sources today was newspapers.com, Ancestry, findagrave.com, Teton Jackson's Prison File, History of Teton National Forest by Esther B. Allen, Confessions of George Dunning, 1892, provided generously by the University of Wyoming, Frontier Trails, the autobiography of Frank M. Canton, Jackson Hole by Frank Calkin, who exchanged letters with Gerald Lennon, the records admitted administrator under Warden Ray May at the Idaho Penitentiary in 1972. And of course, The Wyoming Range War by John W. Davis, an incredibly well-researched book if listeners have any interest in the Johnson County Wars. Oh, so interesting. Davis did his homework. Thanks to Frank Calkins, I was able to track down a photo of Teton Jackson. Apparently, there is mention, though, of a photo of him with Mary holding one of his baby girls. If any listener knows where we could see this photo, I would love to see the photo of Teton holding his baby Mm. with Mary. That sounds fascinating, and I think it would help give a different perspective of the man they called the Prince of Horse Thieves. Also, if you need a reminder of how close this history was one of Teton's sons passed away in 2000. I mean, it's closer than you think. That was amazing. Top-notch research as always. Thank you so much for putting in the bulk of the work for this. Um, And secondly, great job. Thank you, Sky. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. We got a lot of fun episodes. We're almost to the end of the season. We're going to be learning about Dr. Colster and we're going to have some exciting stuff with Alcatraz and then ending with one of the executions. There is a lot of good things to come so please stay tuned as we finish out the last couple weeks of the pod. As always, we are so grateful for all of you listeners. Listeners, as always, do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you later. If you enjoyed Behind Great Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. 
Special thanks to voice actors Rob Goodwin, Brian Zimmerman, Draven Brown, Peter Fidel, Jerry Broad, Kane Scaffer, and Jack Horkade. Thank you very much.